like you said, this is unfamiliar ground for me. Uh, I, it was hard enough for God to get me to lead worship. I was always the I was the shyest kid possibly you'd ever know. So I uh, God one day spoke to me and said, "You're not just supposed to be a musician. You're supposed to lead worship." And then here I am. I don't know. Somehow speaking, I think it was mostly Daryl saying and and Noah. There's different people like Bethany, Daryl, Noah who are just saying you should speak. So. I do have something that I'm really excited to talk about. Some, you know, I don't, I'm not like one of those people who just wants to get up to speak for speaking's sake. I'm here at the House of Prayer because I pray. This is what I do. So this is very near to my heart. It has to do with Harvard. And, uh, you know, I know some of you are Harvard students, and this is a college area. So this is just, I really, my, if there's one thing that I hope God does with this, it's that... Uh, he inspires college students and and you know people in everyday life to to live lives that are exemplary and and holy and uh, and glorify God and where they are. So really, it all began with uh, well when I came here. I came here like four and a half years ago, and I uh, we we were doing prayer walks. Bethany and uh, this girl Abby at the time was part of the House of Prayer. We would all do these prayer walks around Harvard every day. And, uh, yeah, pretty much, like, was it Monday through Friday? Tuesday through Friday? I don't know, something like that. And, you know, at the beginning, I was just like, why are we praying for Harvard? I don't really get it. What's the, what's the purpose of all this? And it wasn't really something that really, uh, you know, I, that I was induced into the whole idea of, like, okay, you know, Harvard is important. Harvard was one of the, it was the founding school in America. It was the first school. It was originally called the School of the Prophets. It was used to uh, train theologians and teachers and pastors, so it, it wasn't a secular school back in the day. But um, you know, it, over over the time, it's gone it's, it's gone south to say the least. They don't it, it, God is not glorified on that campus. But you know, coming to just even just walking around praying every day, somehow just praying for something does something profound to you. You start to get it inside you. So after actually only a month of that. One day I was walking around Harvard and praying with everyone and stopping in front of the philosophy building. I'm like, hold on, I really, I'm really feeling this. Like, this is something that God wants to do. God wants to bring revival to Harvard. He wants, not just Harvard, to universities, colleges across the Northeast, and really, you know, because we're here in Boston, praying for Boston. I think he wants to do it in Boston. But uh, for a while, you know, sometimes when you pray about something, you don't really have like a clear picture. Some, for, I'm very visual, so uh, I work in visual stuff. I do web design, I do video, and I'm just made, I'm just wired that way. I just, I have to see things. When I pray about something, when I'm praying for someone, I have to just be seeing it. It's like how I engage with it. I'm just like, what is the picture that God has for this campus? For a while, I guess I, I prayed without really seeing like a specific picture. I was always thinking worship gatherings, prayer. Prayer will happen on campus. It will you know, it would overtake the Christian students, that Christian students would meet together and pray. But I didn't really have a clear uh, picture of what that might look like until a year ago. It was about a year ago, and I had this dream. I, I get a lot of dreams. Um, and I had this dream that God gave me. In the dream, a friend of mine uh, and I were going over to Harvard. We drove over, and uh, we came to this dorm. It's an actual place in Harvard. Uh, I've just not been to very much. But in the dream, we went over there. It's, uh, it's around behind the law and the science area. 
if the law buildings are here and the science centers here, it's in the yard behind that. It's not really, it's not like more, it's not as touristy. Tourists aren't back there. It's mostly students and people who work at Harvard. But uh, in the dream, we're in this dorm, and I just had this knowledge. Sometimes, you know, you just get knowledge in a dream. You just know something. I knew that 80% of the Christians in this dorm were saved. They loved Jesus. They were Christians. And that it was, and that's not, you know, obviously we know Harvard is not, it doesn't have like a Christian majority necessarily, especially not a, a vibrant one. And this dorm was, it was mostly like God had almost like taken over this dorm. And in the dream, I just felt the presence of God so strong on the campus. And I'm looking out from this second story window over the yard. It's about 5.30, 5, 5.20 in the, uh, in the afternoon. And there's students walking across the campus with their djembes to the dorm for 5.30 worship and prayer, which is what they had every day. And uh, in this dream, I was, I was just like, wow, this is what they do every day. There's just such a, there was a sense of God in the dream. I woke up, I could just still feel it. I was like, wow, what was that? It was really interesting. As I started to, as I kept prayer walking Harvard, um, praying into the dream and still just kind of, you know, asking God what that's all about, I started to get a picture and God drew me to the book of Daniel. Um, I don't know how many, most of you are probably familiar with the life of Daniel and what you know what Daniel's life was all about, what he did. But um, God started to give me a specific picture, um, especially having to do with Daniel and his friends. And uh, I want to I want to look at it. It's uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go crazy with scripture. There's so much depth in Daniel. Um, that we could get into. Daniel was an incredibly, incredibly interesting person. But, um, it's just a, I want to just, I want to get like a bird's eye view of Daniel's life. Kind of the overview. Um, you see, in, uh, we've got Daniel, really just Daniel 119, tells the story basically, Jerusalem is overtaken by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, is not a Christian king at all. He's a Babylonian king, and uh, he's, fairly godless. I mean, as far as the, the sense of the one true God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he worships everything. Um, but he takes over Jerusalem, because God is judging Jerusalem uh, and Israel. And Daniel and his friends, his three friends, are taken with them. Um, Daniel 119, you see... A little hard to read this. And the king, among all of the, all of the, uh, the kids who were taken basically out of Jerusalem, there were none found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And uh, you go on to read that Daniel and his friends, their, his lifestyle, their lifestyle of prayer and fasting, uh, well, he nearly gets their teacher into a lot of trouble, but basically, he ends up letting them, you know, letting them have the diet that they that they want, which is basically no meats, no wine. Um, they didn't drink wine. It was it was a strict Judaic uh, diet that they followed. But not just that, the lifestyle. If you as you read through Daniel, the lifestyle that Daniel and his friends live isn't normal, and uh, it's very easy when you're reading the Bible to kind of just say. You know, oh, that's the Bible, and it, 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 it kind of just glosses over you. It's kind of like a deer in the headlights effect, where you're just standing there, like, cool. I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know how that applies. I, 
you just kind of read it, and you don't really, it doesn't sink in necessarily. But if you, if you just compare in your mind to current day, and what it was like for Daniel and his friends to live the way they did, not bowing before an idol and being thrown in a furnace, that's majorly drastic. The way that they, that they lived and not, there's a, there's a verse here, Daniel 1.8. Daniel made up his mind that he wouldn't defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine that he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. He, he didn't have, he could have just gone along with the program. And if, if all of the youth of, of Israel had been separating themselves, staying holy, living the, uh, you know, the Mosaic law, which was strict, and they were supposed to live, um, I don't think this would be highlighted. I think that they went along with the program. I think that Daniel and his friends were the ones who didn't, and that's why they're being written about here. Uh, the, the, the language is really interesting. You might know from, I know from, uh, it was in children's lessons, I guess, children's church lessons, as early as when I was five years old, that I, would, that I learned that, you know, that food was offered to idols. The, the, the king's food, the king's meat, and the wine and everything. In the children's book, you got this picture of a pig and, and the wine, and everybody just gorging themselves, and Daniel's friends not doing it. But... It was really significant because they, it had been offered to idols. And it, there, there, was, there was idol worship. There was much more than just the food, although it was important because of the Mosaic Law. There's much more than just the food that was at play here. Them basically resisting a culture of godlessness. And uh, I think that that's the reason that Daniel's life took the direction it did. I don't think that he just could have been relevant. And I think he could have just gone along with and been like people uh, and ended up where he did. We're going to see as we go along, Daniel, Daniel's life has more impact than I think a lot of us realize. It was just phenomenal. What, what he did. Besides being a prophet, being an intercessor, he, I really like this because I'm a practical person, he was a guy who did stuff. He, I mean, I love, I love spiritual things. I love it. But I also think that God created our hands and, and our minds to use them so that we can, so that we can do stuff. I don't think that, uh, it's, it, I don't, not everyone, I'll just say this, not everyone is called to just, to just pray or just to minister or to worship, though I'm blessed that people are. Uh, working is what most of us are called to. Studying is what most of us are called to. It's, uh, it's the vocation of most of our lives. And that seems uh, dull. It seems insignificant until you look at it through the eyes of even looking at uh, the book of Daniel. And uh, you look in here, basically Daniel, um, this is the part when you're first speaking that you lose your train of thought. Um, <laughs> let's see here. That's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they're all this, like, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be fine, you're going to be fine. I'm, I'm not nervous about speaking. Uh, I have, I'm very excited about this, but uh, I'm just hoping everything comes out right. But um, basically, Daniel was thrust into significance because, not because he went along with the program, did what the king said, because he was different. But it wasn't just that he didn't uh, do this, uh, he, he didn't drink 
the wine, eat the food. It wasn't because he just adhered to the Mosaic law. It was actually because of his excellence. Um, he had a spirit of excellence on him. Kind of similar. There's only one other place in the Bible you kind of really see like that spirit of excellence. As far as I know, I'm not like this most incredibly illiterate uh, literate theologian, but there's one other place in the Bible I'm aware of where there's like a spirit of excellence that's talked about. Uh, it's the guy who uh, designed the temple. Well, not designed, because the design was given from God, but he was the, the master artisan of working on the temple. And it says that the Spirit of God came upon him with wisdom and understanding and gave him talents, gave him abilities. And he had incredible skill. I did a little research. It turns out, actually... This guy was named Bezalel. Um, when Bezalel was just 13 years old, uh, this is not biblical, this is rabbinic tradition, but he was 13 years old, and according to tradition, Solomon was showing him plans for the temple, and he was discerning complexity that Solomon had gotten from God but couldn't understand. It says that he was named Bezalel, under the shadow of God, because Solomon was like, this kid has been under the shadow of God. I'm going to rename him. <laughs> that's, what, that's what the tradition is. Take it or leave it. Extra biblical tradition is not something any of us are supposed to hang our hats on. But it's very clear in the Bible that Bezalel was anointed, not just in any ordinary way, but to be skillful, to do stuff. I love that. I love my, I do, uh, like I said, I do client work. I do web design and uh, as well as ministry, I, I find a lot of pleasure in it. Um, you know, work and doing work in ministry is demanding at times, but I find a certain pleasure in just being able to glorify God, not just in a song and, uh, you know, prayer, but being able to glorify Him in what I do and, and making things look good. And, you know, that's the same kind of spirit that, that Bezalel had. It's crazy to look at it and see the Spirit of God anointed this kid. Literally, he was a kid. And that kind of is interesting to me because uh, Daniel and his friends were teenagers when they were let out of Babylon. They were only teenagers. And they lived their entire lives together. So, basically, Daniel's thrust into influence because of interpreting dreams, interpreting visions that the, that the king has. We know that. Um, but he and his friends maintain a close-knit community that it's really profound, and it really is the reason that I think they were able to keep their faith. Mm. And uh, that's a really, as, as God is just showing me this, I would be walking around Harvard each day, kind of just praying, and, and uh, you know, God would start to speak to me about, you know, what does it look like for, 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 for students not to lose their faith, for students mm. to be strong and, be, and, and live godly lives, not just godly lives, but exemplary, mm -hmm. and as we're going to see, countercultural lives. Mm -hmm. Daniel and his friends, uh, two major times here, but I'm sure that throughout their time together, they bucked the system. Mm -hmm. they, they didn't just go along with things. You look in, uh, let me see here, uh, let's see. What was it, Daniel 4? Daniel 3. Daniel 3? Yep, Daniel 3 is the... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar gets an idea because of people who tell him that he should do it. He makes a golden statue and has people, as everyone, bow down to it. 
it, not just in Babylon, but in all of the Persian Empire, is is a huge, it's a huge gathering, and they're just picture it. There's got to be possibly millions, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, standing around. Music plays, like a, a very large orchestra plays. Everyone bows. We're talking about hundreds of thousands to millions, and there's four guys. Oh, sorry, three guys, because Daniel wasn't there at that time. There's three men left standing. <laughs> that takes that takes some chutzpah. That's crazy. That's, that's not. That's not just. That's not just speaking up to your to uh, to somebody who doesn't believe in God in class. That's like that's huge. That's that's not just telling your boss that you won't lie on a report because you're Christian. That's losing your life in a drastic, a really epic way. Actually, being thrown into a furnace, and they. You know, we know the story. They get thrown in the furnace and all that. Jesus Himself comes and saves him. Comes and wow. saves them. It's pretty profound. But um, <laughs> you know, you look. What? Where is God being most glorified in this whole thing? We're. It's. I don't have a lot of time to unpack all of this. But Nebuchadnezzar was not, like I said, he was not a believing king. He was a. Uh, he was a heathen king, and he comes. To, in Daniel 4, he writes an entire chapter, as far as we know, he writes this chapter, glorifying God, and basically praising Daniel for his, his faithfulness to God, and his consistency with God. Daniel doesn't just influence the life of one king, though. He influences the lives of three different kings, three different rulers, and two of them give glory to God and issue edicts across the kingdom that God is to be to be reverenced and feared because of Daniel's life. Look in Kings, actually, God actually calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Uh, and he actually, it's really, really weird. I can't get off on a big bunny trail here, but Jerusalem gets overtaken by Babylon a couple of times because Nebuchadnezzar would set up kings. They would turn wicked. He would tear it down again. And, and, but God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant probably because he was influenced by Daniel's life and that he, re he revered God at a later part of his life. But, um, anyway, Nebuchadnezzar. That's, that's just crazy to me. Writing a whole chapter in the Bible, this is the only place you're going to find a pagan king in the Bible giving glory to God, and it's because of Daniel's life and witness. So, anyway, as you can see, I love... I love Daniel. I think it's just he's just the most incredibly interesting person, uh, and one of the most incredibly interesting per people in the Old Testament. But um, one thing I want to point out is Daniel's influence was huge. Mm. What he accomplished was huge. I don't know how many of you raise your hand. Are you familiar with like the Seven Mountains mm. theology, like that kind of teaching? Raise your hands if you are. If you've heard the Seven Mountains theory or whatever that is. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, uh, I, I think there's good parts to it. I really do. There's something I've never heard in that message necessarily that's very clear here. Daniel accomplished, you know, as far, if you want to go along, I guess that terminology. He he conquered a, a mountain or whatever. Mm -hmm. I honestly can't even stand saying that. It's so it sounds kind of cheesy to me, but I get I get the idea behind it. But Daniel did it. He. He influenced nations, not just in, not just one nation. 
Daniel's influence, both because of his standing and his life in God, result in him getting revelation that uh, it causes his, his, his revelation is what caused Jerusalem to be waiting for a specific time period for Jesus to be born. Because he was found in prayer and fasting, so he's a prophet, he's influencing history as a prophet and as an intercessor, in, in, in his in visions or in experiences where angels come to him, because of his intercession and his fasting, mm. angels are telling him, Oh man, greatly beloved. Twice that happens. Mm. The, he, the angel tells him that heaven loves him. That's unusual yeah. in scripture that, that you're being told that. But he's, his influence extends so far that you know the, the prophecy uh, was pinpointed around Jesus' time for Jesus' birth. But you have another element. I don't think... Uh, this isn't extra-biblical. Um, <laughs> I promise it's not extra-biblical. It really isn't. But it's debated a little bit. It's among those who are very high and intelligent. It's debated. But still, it's not hard to draw the lines. So I'm just going to just go Venture for it. There. Why not? <laughs> it's very... It's, it's almost certain... It's almost certain, but not completely certain, but very likely, <laughs> that Daniel is responsible for the Magi coming with the gifts to Jesus. Let me break that down a little bit. He was over the Magi in Babylon. Believe it or not, Daniel was an astrologer. He actually studied astrology under the Babylonian teaching system. That's what they were studying. He was set over, it says, all the magi, all the magicians, or back then they were astrologers, basically, is the main idea, and their, you know, their form of prophecy, which we, as we see, didn't get them anywhere, and he actually, you know why he's over the magi? It's because he saved their butts when they were going to be beheaded. The king was going to kill all of them because he didn't understand a dream, and so Daniel saves their lives, and he's put over them, so they owed a debt of gratitude to him. Actually... I think it was twice he did that, um, and he was going to kill them both times. So they owed a huge debt of gratitude, and not only that, he was over them. So Daniel had huge, huge influence in the Magi. Turns out, the Magi in Jesus' birth came from the Persian er uh, area. Not exactly where Babylon was, but that area. And it's very likely that Daniel told them to be looking for the sign. The reason they brought... Gold, frankincense, and myrrh is because of Isaiah 60. It's, I, I think it's, uh, it's uh, prophesied in there that, they'd be, that gold, frankincense, and myrrh would be brought. There's no other reason that they would bring those specific gifts except for that. So I see a lot of lines pointing to Daniel having to do with that. And it's really, it's really cool. There's so much rich stuff even about just that. Daniel's influence that's very likely interconnects through history. Um, both in prophecy and in the practical. But anyway, I, I definitely, I think I went too far on that because Daniel is very interesting, that's for sure. But that's not, the, the point of my message isn't really about Daniel, it's really about what it would look like on a college campus. I give, mm. I guess all of that, all of those details, just to paint a picture, I guess, of what Daniel saw, what Daniel's life accomplished. I guess that's, that's the only explanation I can give for all that information. Daniel's life 
did so much. Right. And it's not because he was, uh, you know, really avid in his study. It's not because well, he was really ambitious. That's right. Although he was. It was because he lived a countercultural life. Come he on, lived holy in a place where nobody was doing it. Mm. His own people were not doing it. Let me draw a comparison. Christians coming to campuses these days, coming to universities, I see all the time, and it's, it's a statistic, unfortunately, Christians just losing their faith. Mm. Coming to campus, coming to college or university, and being convinced by a professor mm. out of the faith, out of the God that they've loved since they were kids. Mm. That should, why is that happening? Why is it that I've seen fiery students come to campuses, kids who once loved God, lose their faith? I think it's because that they didn't stand up, first of all, to the pressure of the system. I, I also think that it has to do with uh, has to do a couple things. Um, I call it the Daniel stance. And it's, uh, it's the life that Daniel and his friends lived. I think that this has everything to do with whether or not students make an impact on campus or they lose their faith. I don't really think that there's a very big middle ground to tread. I think that uh, you're either going to make an impact, you're going to be seen, or you're going to burn out and at best be a lukewarm Christian, which Jesus says, if you're, <laughs> there's, no, there, there's always grace and there's hope until the very end of your, your last breath, but you never want to be lukewarm. Because Jesus does not like it. It's, in a, it's right there in Revelation. He's, he says, either be hot or cold, or I'll spit you out of my mouth. The, the, the idea there is lukewarmness kills. It kills the spirit. It makes you think you're something you're not. It's, it's, the, it's the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It's the hypocrisy of people who think that they're living something and that they're really not. I don't think that there's a line, really, between making an impact... And, and, and mostly, if not completely, losing your faith, especially on campus, in universities today. It's, uh, Harvard, oh, a little over a hundred years ago, what was the time frame exactly that humanism came into popularity? It's about 60 years after its origin, about 60. Oh, okay. When was that? Exactly. I don't know the exact year. Okay. So it was over 150 years ago. But it, was, it blossomed mainly in like the late 1800s, I believe, right? That it rose as far as the change of the seal and everything. But it was like with the change of a president. There was one okay. Well, especially coming into the early 1900s, you see a massive shift in, in Harvard that eventually shifts, I believe, the nation uh, of, of America. Basically, humanism, the idea of man is the measure of all things, and that our minds and what we think of and relativism and all these other isms that, is, that these guys came up with. Um, they first this first started in Harvard, and uh, the promulgation of that across Harvard and across the campuses of America is basically anti, the whole anti-God thing. You're all aware of it. You know, just the fact that it's it's hostile. It's hostile to faith. It's hostile to to God. The only way I I think that it's kind of similar to what. Uh, to what Daniel's time was. 
it wasn't anti-God back then. It was anti-God uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and mm -hmm. Jacob. They would just taken over Jerusalem. They were not interested in it. And they were worshipping false gods. So, very similar. I think that the greatest God of all history really is in our time because humanism is, is a God of our own mind. So, it's the same thing. But I think that the only reason that Daniel and his friends lasted was by prayer mm. and fasting. Amen. Uh, you see a common thread. Amen. Hearing from God in dreams and visions. Mm. It's, that's huge. Get back to that. Held, they were held together by community. Uh, it's likely him and his friends, at least when they were, during their early times, that they, that they lived in proximity or they lived together. Um, at least that's my assumption. But they, they kept, you can see that they kept a strong bond, mm -hmm. strong friendship throughout their time. Prayer and fasting. These are the three, those three things, these are the things that God really highlighted to me. I think that uh, in order to see something different on college campuses, the only way we're going to see it, it's not, it's not through just praying in your closet alone. So you have to do that. You have to live a life of devotion. You have to keep the fire in your own heart in that way. But I really believe that God's going to call. I don't know how. I'm, uh, it's something that I think that whether or not we're college students, if you're not a college student especially, pray for this, that this does happen on the campuses here in Boston. But that students would come together and pray. And the vision that I got really was... Uh, just praying over their meals. It's something, praying over their meals, coming together midday to pray. I know there's this one group that for a while is meeting in the mornings, small group, meeting in the mornings at, at Memorial Chapel. But what if a flood of that just flooded over Harvard? What if students, all Christians, yeah. made a pact together and said, we're going to pray daily. What if there was 5.30 worship and prayer? And students are walking across the yard carrying djembes every single day. Not just once a week. You know, I, 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 get, I have to be careful not to, not to sound jaded or anything, but, you know, we can find time for anything. Anything. Uh, I find it so funny when uh, we don't have a context for even being able to attend one meeting a week regularly whether it's on our campus or somewhere else or at a church somewhere, I know that busyness happens. But I really, I really feel like the priority in our lives shows whether or not, you know, we, whether or not we value these things. I really think that when God transforms the student body, Harvard, MIT, Tufts, BU, different campuses around here, even high schools, mm. that we're going to see a shift in the way that we think about our time yeah. and that you will see things like everyday worship and prayer. You'll see students. Let me tell you, I've experienced it in my life. I remember the first 40 days. It was, it was a wild time, but I was rocked by it. I loved it. I mean, Daryl and... Daryl especially, I think he would add some rough times through there, but you know, he was he was sweating it. He was working a full time job and leading worship. I understand it. I was just getting to enjoy it, so I would just come and enjoy it. But the first forty days where we were started here, over in that little Baptist church or big Baptist church in Central, uh, I did, the the priority of my life really changed, and I found like 
all I want to do is pray. I really, I'll find time for it anytime. You know, I was in the middle of starting a business with my brother. My advice is, if you only start a business in your teens, if you really, really want to. But it was, it was really, it was kind of fun, but uh, not the best idea. But uh, you know, even with that, I was like, you know what? I've got to find time for prayer. This is what I want to do. It's a fire that starts to burn in you, and I really think it's gonna. When when God really does revive campuses, He really does revive universities. It's going to be a priority once again Amen. that you can find time for a worship meeting every Amen. day. You can find time for praying Amen. with your friends for 15 minutes over lunch. I think that a whole new paradigm mm. needs to come over us. I, I think that uh, we're way too in the box. We're way, way, way too in the box in our thinking, especially the way that... when you, For those of you who do come and pray on Saturday nights, one more time, when you do come on a Saturday night, on a Wednesday night, in the morning, to pray for Harvard, to pray for Boston, I encourage you to do this. Don't just pray words. Don't, as though it's good, and I know there's heart in it, but sometimes yeah, you can find yourself just saying things. I encourage you, I challenge you, look for a picture, find the picture that God has for you, that you get to pray into. What will it look like? When what you're praying for happens, mm -hmm. I encourage you, whatever it is you're praying for, as you're praying for it, envision that. I, it'll change the way that you pray about it. But uh, I think we need to get a, a different paradigm of how we pray for even the students at Harvard. I think that God is going to call students to live counterculturally. I think that it's... Okay, so like I was saying earlier, contrast... Contrast the life of uh, the, the the experience, the circumstances of Daniel, with the present day. I know. Okay, say you're going to Harvard. You have lots of things on the line. But you don't have your life on the line. Your career may be on the line. Your teacher's admiration, your your teacher's, I guess, liking of you. Uh, you know the emotions there, or or getting in trouble with your school. Or some, something like that. I'm not a student, so I don't know all the dynamics, but I know, you know, that, that those are some possibilities. But your life is not on the line. That I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think that if with that, with that kind of perspective, when God, I just, let me, let me, let me say this. When you ask God what your life should look like, don't put, this is, okay, I'm not going to say box. Don't just, don't just compartmentalize that. Say, oh God, what kind of house are we going to buy? Am I, am I called to ministry or not? I mean, that is shallow. I mean, it's, but it's what we all do. It is. Seriously, if, if, if that's the way that you think about life, God has not renewed your mind. Okay, it's it, your life. God wants to permeate it. He, go, he wants to permeate your work, your study. When you ask God, if you're, if you're before God and you ask Him, alright, what does it look like? How do I change my school? And if you get a picture of doing something unusual, I'll let your mind fill in the blank. <laughs> I, 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 won't, I won't just come up with an idea there. There's plenty of things. I'm sure you've thought of them. If you, if you get a picture of something unusual, don't just say, 
Oh, that's just crazy. That's not, that's not God. I, I would bet that's God. I think that that's probably God. And the reason that we're not seeing transformation in places like Harvard is because we don't have... It, it, you know, it only takes one or two. Uh, history says that. It, it says it loud and clear. Revivals of all kinds have started because people got outside of their box and did what God was actually envisioning them to do. They got up on tables and preached in the middle of a cafeteria. They did crazy stuff. And let me, I, I just, we have gotten so, I would say, watered down by relevant thinking. Uh, there's, there's a lot of good things, I guess, about being relevant <laughs> to the world. And you know, I'm a real empathetic person. And I like to just, I like to be relevant to people I, just as much as anybody. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's how God operates. He's, he, he's wild. He's, he's just outside of how we normally think. He's outside of our normal box. And I think that when he shows you, uh, you saying something or doing something on your campus or in your workplace that you wouldn't normally do, that is probably God. That's probably a catalyst that God wants you to, to uh, God wants to use to change your school. I think if we did those things, it would be a lot different. It would be a lot different on our campuses. I've, my, my belief is that God is going to raise up people who look very unusual. And it's going to be very, it's going to be very strange, I think, <coughs> to, to people's thinking. Places like Harvard. Places like, even, even on street corners. Whatever it is, wherever God's called you, if He's called you to, to preach, if He's called you in your workplace to be an example in a profound way, Jesus. it's not this. It's not the same everywhere. And you, God will, is the one who gives you the idea. God's the one who gives you the vision. But I just encourage you. It's probably a lot less tame than you think it is. So, prayer, fasting. Mm-hmm. I when I first got this whole vision from God, I was just like, okay. What's this look like for me? And I got this. I think that I think that everybody, honestly, as far as prayer and fasting goes, that God will give each person something, uh, something unique. The way that, I, the way that they're they're called to live their life, to posture their life in prayer and fasting. But uh, well, I was kind of you know mulling over all this, like the Daniel, the, the the Daniel stance, the way that they lived their lives. I was like, you know what, prayer and fasting. As I was walking around, prayer walking Harvard, trying to every day, uh, I started to just get this phrase, fast until you've prayed. And uh, that's not easy. <laughs> I don't, I, if you go into my little uh, loft area, you'll see next to my desk, it's, it's right there. I made a little placard, and it says it, fast until you've prayed. What that means is, you don't get to eat until you spent quality time with God, which... It sounds easy, and it should be easy. It's not always easy. So, I haven't done it perfectly. But uh, it, is a good, it is a good thing to live by. I think that God will give each one of you uh, lifestyles of fasting. If I've found it in my life. If you're not in a rhythm of fasting and prayer, uh, there's something wrong. There's something that's not, that's not right. Uh, so, prayer and fasting is a huge part of it. 
Remember, this is all this is all having to do with uh, living a godly life, living a countercultural life, being not just an example, but staying alive in God mm-hmm. in the midst of your university, in your campus. If you're not a student, it's in your workplace. But this is especially God's really given me just a, a desire just to see the campuses revived by God for students to just be on fire. Salvation's happening en masse. Worship services numbered by the thousands. I, I think that God wants to do those things. I know He wants to do those things. I have a lot of dreams, and some of those are about those things. But whether or not you, you're a dreamer or you have a vision that you can see in your head, I think that God can bear witness in your spirit. God wants to do those things here in Boston and, and, and everywhere. The other, th- the other aspect... Daniel had incredible wisdom and dreams and visions. That's why he was, in that time, in the time of ancient Persia, uh, around the time of Daniel, dreams uh, and visions were really valued. That's why the king called uh, for the interpretation those two times. But it's not... I think Western culture has made dreams a, a, a subject of psychology and taken it completely out of the spiritual realm. And this is the thing that happens when you do that. It's, it's, it's hard to, sometimes it's hard to see the extent that humanism affects our thinking in every way. But it extends to dreams. It extends to visions. The way that, God, that we allow God to speak to us. Uh, in my experience as a kid, I was, a, I was in my mid-teens, and I started to just pray every night. I was like, Lord, speak to me in my dreams. Um... And I prayed that for over a year every night. And it wasn't, it wasn't always that it was profound or anything. But he started to teach me how to hear him in dreams. And he, in, in the ancient times, in, in the Bible, dreams were valued because they, people knew God spoke through them. And we've lost that. We've lost a huge way that God speaks to you. Think of one other part of your day where your mind is not necessarily involved when God speaks to you, where you can't just butt in and think clearly. You can't think lucidly. It's a perfect time for God to speak to you. I think that God wants to speak to us way more in dreams. I'm actually here in Boston because of a series of dreams that God gave me. And uh, it's very crazy things that I won't get into, my brother's right here, he knows for a while, we would drive, I, we would be driving in the, in the family van, and I'd be like, oh wait, oh wait a minute, and I would just, and because it, it, it was so often, it was like, almost every time we drove somewhere, he'd be like, saw it in a dream, <laughs> it, was, it was, it was almost, I felt like Joseph, no, I'm just kidding, but, uh, no, no, I, I didn't feel like Joseph, my brother came down here to support me, my brother came down here to support me, and no, I, I know, I know he thinks it's cool. <laughs> but, but uh, I mean, for God did answer my prayer. I would, I would see situations, conversations, people, places. For a while, I saw like almost a third of the places, the new places I would go in a dream. What's the reason for that? I don't know. Probably just so that God could teach me that. He, he could speak to me. He would know the Lord and you'd stay. <laughs> so then the Lord. And then he gave me very specific dreams I saw. Okay. 
We might as well tell it. I saw, before I came down for the first 40 days, I asked God, am I supposed to be part of this? And uh, I was thinking just for the 40 days if I was supposed to stay. But God you know, speaks to me in a dream. And in the dream I see the whole inside and outside of the church that we were to do the 40 days in. In the dreams that God was specifically telling me in the dream to come here and move here, I see this house that we're in right now. I'd never seen it. I'd never, I'd never been down the street. So there's a, there's a, just a lot of, there's a lot of ways that God spoke to and directed my life because of dreams. But I'm running out of time, so I've got to wrap this up. Basically, this is my encouragement to you: if you don't think dreams are significant, read the Bible, and if you do think that they're significant. Seek God for them. Ask God for them. He will give them to you. And I know that there's weird stuff in dreams, okay? It will happen. But the more you seek God, the more that stuff gets filtered out. You're not going to have pizza dreams for the rest of your life. You're not, not going to be naked in public for the rest of your life. It's it. I can just... I mean, that happens to a lot of people. I don't know if you know. It does. Can I just expose your dream life? That's funny. Well, anyway. <laughs> anyway, God filters that stuff. He will. He will. He will sort it out if you seek. That's that's. He will sort it out. He really will. And and my experience is is profound. Actually, those things go away if you're having night terrors. I encourage you, seek God. Don't just seek counseling. Don't just seek psychology. Once again, I, I encourage you, whenever it is that you start to think, oh, this is the psychology of this, and this is the psychology of that, this, I do that sometimes, but that it's not something we should, you, you should not approach hearing God from a viewpoint of psychology. That probably sounds really weird. It does, probably doesn't even sound right. But do not apply secular uh, psychology to hearing from God. Because it, it comes from a system that's anti-God. And if you listen to it, you will neutralize the voice of God in your life. Especially in dreams. So seek God for your dreams. He'll sort stuff out. And you'll you'll hear God. Anyway, last thing, community. It's really simple. I, I encourage you, you know, live in community. I, I live in community here. I'm so blessed. These guys have just worked so hard to have a community house for people who live here at J-Hop, and it's the biggest blessing in my life. I, there's no way, there's, I don't think there's a way that I could just be where I'm at right now if I were just living alone, trying to just, just, just do it on my own. I think, I know that sounds weak, I don't know. And I, I, I bless all of you who are, who are able to do it. If you're, you're, you know, you're living with unbelievers, you're rooming with, un, with people who don't know Jesus. I believe there's grace for that, but I don't know if I could do it. I, I've really, I've been strengthened so much by living <coughs> in a house with believers. But it's not just that. If you don't live in a house with believers, meet regularly with them. Be with them. Form just a group of. I don't, I'm not talking about church. I'm talking about a group of friends that you meet with regularly, that you pray with. If you do live in a house, I want to say this. Don't just think that just passing by each other each day, you're going to have spirituality rub off on each other. It won't happen. It just won't. I mean, in a way it kind of does, but it just 
It's not substantial enough. It's just not enough. You have to intentional act, intentionally. Okay, this, let's try that again. You have to intentionally spiritualize your life with fellow believers. You can't just imagine that it's going to happen automatically. It won't. It, it, got, it doesn't work that way. You have to... Look at the early church. They met together daily. They broke bread daily. That's pretty often. I mean, they did not live life separately. It's pretty extreme, actually. You look at the fruit of the early church, we're always looking, what was, what's the deal with all that fruit? We want to be like the early church. It's always what we want. They were extreme, man. They, they sold their possessions and... What was the purpose of their selling possessions? So that they could help each other, feed the poor, and live together in community. Which actually kept them from losing their faith. It kept them strong during times of persecution. All the way to the days of the catacombs. When they would live in caves because they would be killed. It's, you can trace community living all the way from the earlier church to that. And it was, it was a huge part of early church life until the time of uh, Constantine when the Roman Catholic Church basically was started to be formed and it was the state government. Everybody felt comfortable. So they, they'd not, they didn't live in community as much anymore. But I, I think that living in community li- or, or you don't have to live in, in the same geographical exact spot to be in community. I think that you can... Like I said, meet with friends daily. Meet with friends regularly and pray. Don't just chew the fat. Don't just eat food. It's going out to eat with your friends will not make you any more spiritual. It won't. You have to pray. You have to. And I encourage you. You have to inspire each other. You have to exhort each other, like the early church did. Where they'd come together and one would have a word for the other, edifying. That's what Paul was talking about. So, anyway, prayer and fasting. This is what the Daniel stance is. Prayer and fasting. Hearing from God in dreams and visions. And living in community. These are, these are the things I think God's going, going to do. You know, I just, I, I just really feel like, I'm really hoping that God will... We'll give people pictures of what this will be like. We'll give people an idea. An image, maybe. I don't know. But I, this is what I, what I want you to do. Uh, I, don't, I, I think that altar calls are awesome, and, uh, and they're really necessary. But today, I don't want to do one. I, wanna, I want us to, to, uh, to meditate on this. I want us to go home. Whether or not you're a student, I want you to ask God... If your life is too vanilla, I want to. I want you to ask God if your life is too neutral. If you're, if you're, if you're not, if you need to get it into the next gear, not just in any vague way, but especially living counterculturally in your workplace. Are you standing up for Christ? Are you living counterculturally in fasting and in prayer? Would your stu- would your coworkers notice if you weren't eating? For 40 days, uh, you know, meats and sweets. I'm not talking about water. That's hard to do. I can't. I can't do water for more than like two days. So I don't judge anybody. Trust me. But the, the, you, you can fast 
all kinds of things. But especially, I think anybody can do a Daniel fast. Daniel actually pioneered one of the easier fasts. <laughs> I love it. I, I just like, yes, thank you, Daniel. I can do this. So I think that anybody, I think anybody could do a Daniel fast. And I think, yeah. you know, like Jesus said, you don't have. It's not to be noticed. That's not the point of of everything. But um, what I'm praying for is that. When, when God really does wake us up to what it looks like to live radically, to live counterculturally, that, that it will look a lot different. Yeah. It's gonna, and the, the whole idea of it looking different is we haven't conceived of it. And God, I think, wants to do that in your mind and in your heart when you seek Him. So I think, I think that what we should all do is, as you go to bed tonight, as you wake up tomorrow, seek God. Ask God, what, it, what does it look like for your life to be uh, an example? What does it look like for you to live in prayer and fasting? What's the fast or what's the regular fast that he's calling you to? What's a rhythm of prayer that he's calling you to? What's, uh, the, what's the, what's, how, how are you supposed to connect with fellow believers, whether in your workplace, where you live, or as far as campus goes, in your campus, in your dorm, wherever it is you are? Ask God what it is that He'd have you do. And uh, I just pray that God will really awaken something new here in, here in Boston. It's what I'm praying for. It's the, reason that, it's the reason that I'm speaking, but it's the reason I'm here in Boston. It's the reason I'm, I'm praying for Harvard. It's the reason I'm praying for MIT and all the other campuses. I don't just want to see regular church. I don't want to just see regular... Uh, boring, what's been boring, mm -hmm. Christianity. Mm -hmm. I think God is way more than that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just pray that God stirs your imagination. Your imagination was given to you by God. It's not bad. It's ask Him to give you an imagination for what that would look like. Anyway, that's it. Amen. Come on, Mr. That was great, dude. Awesome. I love what he said, um, finding a rhythm. I believe that's what it's about.